We always want to project into the future as the best possible version of ourselves. But we often fall into the trap of setting our goals based on what we've been told we should aim for or what we see our neighbors aiming for. A big part of enjoying our time in graduate school depends on being in tune with our personal values, our strengths and with what makes us tick. This week, Felicia Carpati shares how she came into science and how she transitioned from a PhD in neuroscience to an all-tech position doing what she loves most. The old school way of thinking is that a PhD is training for an academic job, and if you don't do it, it means you weren't good enough. I think that's also coming from a time where there were a lot less people doing PhDs. It was less accessible. So the percentage of people going from PhD into an academic research career was extremely high. But at this point, that's not the case at all. Uh, there's a lot of people pursuing PhDs because they're passionate about the research and they want to know more about that particular topic. They want to contribute to the knowledge or treatments or policy in that particular field. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. So this week I'm here at McGill University at the library actually, uh, so you'll probably hear some extraneous sounds out there, uh, with Felicia Carpati. Felicia is a skills development professional with a background in neuroscience, currently based in Montreal. She completed her undergraduate studies in neuroscience at the University of Toronto, then a PhD in the Integrated Program in Neuroscience at McGill University. She now works as a program officer at the Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives initiative at McGill, where she manages a training program for students and postdocs with an interest in neuroscience. Welcome to the show, Felicia. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and share my experience with your audience. Well, I'm super happy to have you here. You're doing things that are really close to, to my heart and, and that I think the listeners will really appreciate hearing about. And I'm really eager to hear your story, hear how you came into, into science first uh, and eventually to get into this project, uh, Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives, which touches upon so many things that I try always and in every episode to, to talk about and to bring to the listeners out there. But I'll let you talk about it eventually. Um, just for the listeners, if you want to go straight to the part where we talk about what Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives is and what's, uh, what's in the pipeline, let's say, for, for uh, PhD students and postdocs in the program, we're going to talk about it in the second part of the show. So, yeah, Felicia, the first thing that I'd like to ask you is to tell the listeners a little bit about you, about how you came to, you know, fall in love with science, which I guess you did, eventually neuroscience, but then fall in love with different things. Uh, so my love for science has been there since I was little. My family keeps telling me how as young as three years old, I was always just asking why. So 
why is the sky blue? Why do trees look like that? Why does it snow? Why doesn't it rain in the winter? All that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so I was always curious. I always wanted to know why things were the way they are. And even more than that, why people behaved in the way that they do. So even as a little kid, I would be asking, why did that person do that? Why did that person say this thing to the other one? Why are they angry? Why do they feel this way? And over time, that led me to have an interest in the brain because the brain really is everything that we do. Everything we say, everything we think, it all comes from there. So I wanted to know really the deeper roots of that. So that led me to pursue my undergrad in neuroscience at the University of Toronto. So I'm originally from uh, Toronto, so I stayed there for my undergrad. And growing up, I was also very passionate about the arts. I started playing piano when I was three. I started dancing when I was eight. So those are things that um, I continue to do throughout my life until today. So I, at the end of high school, I had a decision whether I wanted to pursue science or art. And I decided to go the science route because I could always do art on the side. Whereas if I went the arts route, it's pretty tough to do science on the side. So as I was doing my undergrad and I was learning more about the brain and different types of research that was going on, I learned about the research on music in the brain. So I knew that was what I wanted to study going forward. And as I was graduating and, and ready to move on to grad school, uh, I knew I wanted to come to McGill because of the integrated program in neuroscience uh, and its worldwide reputation. As I was looking through supervisors, I found one who worked on the neuroscience of dance. And that was the first time I had ever heard of that even as a possibility. And I knew that was the project that I really wanted to work on. Um, so that moved pretty quickly. It was a perfect fit. Um, so my project was investigating brain structure in dancers and musicians compared to uh, untrained controls. So then how did I get from science into what I'm doing now? Um, so while I was doing my PhD, I was working part-time at Skillsets, which is a McGill-wide professional development program. So I started working there about halfway through my PhD. Um, originally started because I needed some extra money, but eventually it evolved into me realizing that that was the type of work that I really enjoyed doing. So during your PhD? Yes. And what, what was your role at Skillsets? So I started off um, doing some workshop design and facilitation, particularly related to public speaking and science communication. And as I got more involved there, I started working with some of their different initiatives. I worked with um, Grad Life, doing some Instagramming for them, getting um, getting more involved in communications and different aspects. I worked on uh, an undergrad professional development program as well, and helped with the design and development and eventually managing the marketing strategy for its launch. So I did that. Um, part-time through the second half of my PhD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just, just uh, there's a bunch of questions from the things you just told us that I'd like to ask, but let's go to the first one, which is how do you get to know about this project and how did you manage to fit, you know, a paid activity which was related but was not exactly, you know, close to your research? How, how did you negotiate that? How did you make that work into your, your PhD, let's say, your PhD schedule, your PhD uh, routine? So I realized about halfway through my degree that um, the financial support from the minimum stipend was just not working for me and I needed something else to supplement that. Um, so I became a work-study student and 
I actually started as uh, an admin assistant doing filing and photocopying and all that sort of stuff at teaching and learning services, which is where skill sets is based. Mm-hmm. And after being there a little bit and doing the admin work, I got connected to the people who were running skill sets, shared some of my background and interest, and then we transitioned me into the workshop design and facilitation role uh, as part of my work study. Okay, that, that's super interesting. Because uh, So this, this brings me to another question, which is the day-to-day in your PhD project, because I'm thinking of the day-to-day that I had in my PhD project, it wouldn't have been easy to develop another activity. How, in your domain, you were studying the, the neuroscience of, of dance, you know, what allowed you to, to have this possibility of developing this activity on the side? I was lucky that my PhD schedule was very flexible. So I actually did a lot of different things. I had obviously my lab work, plus skill sets, plus uh, I volunteered for brain reach. Uh, I was a member of some student government as well. So the first little bit of my PhD, as it is for most people, was focused on literature review. Uh, I wrote a review paper at that time as well, doing some study design. And then I had about two years of data collection. So this was the most structured part of my degree where we would recruit our dancers, musicians, and untrained controls. We would bring them in for behavioral testing and MRI brain scans. So that schedule was, it was kind of, it was all over the place depending on what the participants wanted. Um, But each participant took about five hours uh, plus setup and all that. So that was quite a busy time. Um, So I actually started working at Skillsets after that time. Yeah. Uh, So during the second half of my PhD was focused on analysis and writing, which was extremely flexible. I could set my own timeline and um, work remotely. So it was pretty easy to to squeeze in. If I had a meeting at skill sets in the morning, then I would maybe go to the lab in the afternoon or work from home that day. Um, Or if I needed to give a workshop, I could do my lab work in the evening. It was pretty flexible. Excellent. So that kind of um, shows that depending on uh, your subject, you may or may not have the possibility to to do what what Felicia did. But I think it's super cool that I, I don't know exactly the age you were at then, but you know that at that time during your PhD, you had the impetus to okay, now I do I need to do something else, and you did. So I, I think uh, people that are listening out there, you can only gain from from uh, having an activity besides just your your analysis just your bench work uh, for some people who have uh, more involved research it could be just you know yoga meditation sports whatever if you have a more flexible schedule definitely taking part in student uh, organizations uh, and in this case in this case this was related to student life so this this was really awesome good good really good job <laughs> so if I'm by, um, working or volunteering with organizations on campus um, they're very understanding of the needs of grad students. So if I say I can't come to a meeting because I need to do my lab work or I need to give a presentation, they were fine with that. Again, if you're listening out there, uh, try try to see around you if there's something that you can you know get implicated. It'll and I imagine this brought you to meet people exactly that you wouldn't have met otherwise. Uh, within, I guess, the structure also of, of the university and eventually, and we'll talk about it, probably also had ripple effects later on, right? Exactly. <laughs> <She's> nodding, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. This is super cool. Now, another curiosity, and you know, you, you may or may not want to answer, 
You said that you like dan you play the piano, and that it must have taken a lot of time and years of, of, of study and of practice. Uh, what about dancing? What do you dance? Just out of curiosity. Um, so I started dancing um, a little bit later than I started piano. So piano for me was always, um, I guess, the more structured hobby. I did um, exams. I did uh, the Royal Conservatory program. Uh, so it was quite intense. I did, I did competitions. Uh, dance for me was um, more of a relaxed hobby. So I spent less time on that. And uh, it was just something I could always do on the side just to enjoy. So I started off learning jazz, picked up hip hop after that. In my undergrad, I was in a dance company uh, within the University of Toronto. And I started choreographing there. So I got more involved in contemporary and modern styles. And now I, I still take some classes um, and dip into different styles, but mostly contemporary or hip hop. So would you say that it's kind of a, a meditation in movement for you? Like when you dance, are you kind of like venting and, and, and oh, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's definitely recharging your a, batteries? Exactly. It's a perfect form of expression for me because I love music. But when I listen to music, I actually visualize dance. It's really hard for me to listen to music and not move or visualize. So having that dance class or other things like Zumba or exercise classes where there's music, that's perfect because I get the best of both worlds. <laughs> Did you go into the MRI? <laughs> <laughs> I can't because I'm a dancer and a musician, so I couldn't be in my own study. That's amazing. So super cool. And now one of the things that, that uh, again, is speaking my interest is the fact that you've been Uh, and you say you you still play. Yeah. Um, I imagine you, you do. You still compete? No. No, you don't compete no, I actually took a long break when I was 18. I stopped playing completely for a quite a long time, and I just picked it up recently, a year ago. Okay. So it's still something that I can do on the side if I have an hour to to relax. Mm. So before I was doing classical music and now I'm focusing more on pop music. That's something I can learn pretty quickly, play through a song. Next week I'll learn something else. Super interesting. Uh, where, where I was, uh, what I was trying to get to was, do you think or do you feel that, uh, you know, having started at three, that's what you said, right? Um, that somehow, because for sure the fact that you're studying the brain, you know, music and the brain... It has to do with your passion for music. But the part where you've, you, you've been a student for a long time, you've, you've had to do competition, you've had to practice a lot. Um, do you have any uh, insight on whether that's had an effect on how you approach projects, how you, um, you know, if, if that also, I, I mentioned ripple effects before, if that also ripples into who you are today and, and how you 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 know you you navigate life i think it definitely does so uh one question that always comes up in i would say most fields of research is the nature versus nurture question so am i the way i am now because i played music and danced and had that um that more serious hobby growing up Or did I succeed enough to get to that point because I was kind of born that way? So we don't know the answer to that, but what we do know from um, some different studies at McGill Concordia and, and other universities is that um, if you start playing music before the age of seven, the effects on your brain are different than if they start later because your brain is more plastic at the earlier age. So it's definitely possible that that early training did um, affect how I process 
sound, maybe movement and um, attention, other aspects like that, that could um, have affected my academic career as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't necessarily know. Could have just been <laughs> more like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's a, it's a, dif- it's a different, dif- it's a difficult one to kind of to split uh, the one thing from the other. Behaviorally, at least, um, starting that earlier on, it definitely impacted my self-motivation. Mm-hmm that if I have this exam or this competition coming up, I want to do well, so I have to practice for it. And that's an attitude that I keep even now. If I am giving a presentation or I have to write something and I know when it's happening, I make sure that I schedule out my practice. I make sure that I come prepared. That makes total sense. And it, it because this makes me think I've had a couple of uh, people on the show who have been fairly high-level uh, um, uh, athletes, and they, 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 it's exactly what you just said is, is basically what they took from that aspect. And they also started young doing either cycling and the other one was, was volleyball from a young age. And, uh, and that aspect of, you know, focus, uh, practice, determination, which are very key for, for if you embark on a PhD, you know, it, for sure there's, there, it's a skill set that's super valuable to you. Exactly. I found, especially with a PhD like mine, that... Um, was a little bit less structured in terms of having to be at the lab and do experiments all the time. That self-motivation was crucial because I knew I wanted to submit this paper by a particular time or I wanted to graduate at a particular time. Um, what's the back steps that I need to do to get there and actually having the motivation to do that on my own. Yeah. This is super interesting and uh, and uh, I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that because I it's what's interesting to me and I hope it is also to, to the listeners is Really, to 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 see that you're not defined by your results, you're not defined by your degree. Your life is a whole organic thing, and that's made of many different pieces. Different people coming into a PhD will bring different things to the table. Some people are going to be have, have you know, photographic memory. Some people uh, are going to be um, super good at, at doing abstract thinking. Some people are going to bring completely different things. It's they because they think transversely. So. It's super interesting and I'm super happy to learn that that uh, these things are in your past and that you feel that they still have an, an effect in, in what you do today and in how you do things today. The next question uh, that, I, that I'd like to ask has to do with for people who are still, you know, in their PhD. We already saw how the fact that you had a subject that allowed you for some flexibility this made it possible for you to develop activities that uh, that gave you you know, so, some income, which which is important, to give back a, a little bit to the student community because of, of exactly what the, that uh, skill sets group was doing, but then also uh, meet people in that um, in that context. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the networking that that happened kind of organically during your PhD on the research side, but then also on your on your skill set side? how that helped you kind of grow into who you are today and come to do what you do today? So on the research side, um, I was, through my my actual project, I was mainly connected with um, the music language sort of neuroscience community. Um, But then because I was volunteering with other organizations like BrainReach, I was connecting with uh, mainly students that were working in all different fields of Neuroscience. So that really broadened my uh, my knowledge of what's around. 
And then through skill sets, I worked with not only the um, the staff at that office, I also worked with graduate and postdoctoral studies. Um, I worked on a special project on the graduate supervision website. So that uh, made me some connections in some different offices. Mm-hmm. And the job that I'm in right now, I work in professional development for neuroscience students and postdocs. So it's really a combination of both of those. So in order to succeed in this job, I need to have some sort of reputation in the neuroscience community. People know that I understand brains and I know what it's like to be a student at McGill in that discipline. Um, But also having those connections um, and respect in the professional development groups at McGill that they know I've been around for a while, that I've worked on a bunch of different programs. I know how things work. I think that was key to getting this position. Um, I definitely got this uh, because of the connections and the experience that I got through both neuroscience and uh, skill sets. Your set of strong suits was perfect for the, for the position. Yeah, I, I got lucky that this happened to open up just a few months after I graduated. This, this brings me to, to another uh, point, which is deciding or, or, or realizing that uh, you're finishing your PhD you know, you, you need to write, you need to have that motivation for that too. And maybe we can talk a little bit about how, how you dealt with that. But then also, you know, am I going to now go for a postdoc or not? Just uh, share a little bit about how, the, how that went, how that reflection happened. Did you feel anxious uh, about it a little bit? Uh, and, um, and how were you able to then find out, okay, no, my calling is this, this is what I'm so when I started my PhD, I was like probably a lot of people who are starting a PhD, I did want to go that academic route. And my plan at the time when I started was I'm going to finish my PhD, I'm going to go do a postdoc probably in Europe, and then find an academic position whenever it comes up. And I guess I had different realizations about different aspects of it. So the first being the amount of moving around that needs to happen. So originally, I actually didn't even realize you needed to do a postdoc. I thought you can just do a PhD and then get a faculty position, which is not really common. So that was one lesson. And the second lesson was that um, in many fields, it's common and encouraged to do your undergrad, grad, and postdoc at different institutions. That doesn't necessarily happen for everybody. There are some people that might stay, uh, but it is the, the kind of reputation within the field that it's preferable if you move around. So when I first started my PhD, I started my PhD very young. I was 21. And I was fresh out of undergrad and I was like, no commitments, everything, I can do whatever I want. So the idea of moving around at that point was totally feasible and interesting to me because I love traveling as well. I love exploring new places. Yeah, I'll live in Montreal for a bit. I'll go move to Europe. Um, But halfway through my PhD, um, there were a lot of changes, one being I just kind of lost interest in the academic, in the typical academic career. I mean, I still work in the university in an academic environment, but not as a, a researcher. So I saw where my interests lied and what parts of research I didn't enjoy as much. And I found myself drawn more to presenting and communicating my work, um, anything that involved working with others and collaboration, more so than um, writing grants and some of the more um, individual work. And through, through talking to some PIs, I learned more about kind of what the day-to-day is. And I felt that I think it's, it's a great career option for people who are really passionate about the research and 
who want to start a lab. And I found for me, it didn't really draw on where my strengths were. My strengths were much more um, teaching and communicating, which is a part of an academic career. It just wasn't enough of that for me. So I knew I wanted to move into um, non-academic or I would say alt-academic, which is where I ended up. Uh, because I love the university environment, I didn't necessarily want to leave that. Um, but finding something that's, I guess, a combination of your your typical non-academic workplace yeah. in the university environment. I totally understand it. And clearly, from what you've said before, the skills and, and the work that you did during your PhD are totally part of what you do today. So again, if one of the, the, the myths that I like to kind of break uh, is that uh, if you do a PhD, you need to go into research. It's, it's not true. You can do so many other things where your PhD will, will give you the tools and the skills to excel. Uh, but in other domains that are either alternative academic, like you said, or, or non-academic completely. One thing you mentioned that, uh, again, I'd like to, uh, to talk a little bit about is you had some conversations with, uh, with principal investigators about the day-to-day. How, how did you go about approaching them? Was it easy? Were they, you know, uh, because I think this is an important thing is you are at university. There's people around you that live through what is uh, the day-to-day of being a researcher full-time. It's the perfect time to take two minutes on the, in the elevator or having a coffee. How did you do that and how did it go? How did people react to, to your, your questions? And well, I started off with uh, a couple of PIs that were closer to me. So my supervisor advisory committee. And because they knew me quite well and knew where my interests were, um, I didn't feel any judgment at all because especially something like presenting and communicating was just something that came up so much that I kept asking to go to conferences. I wanted to present more posters. I wanted to, I like did three minute thesis. These were the things that I, I went and did on my own. So they kind of knew that's where I wanted. So I found it was more, it was a realistic conversation. It was like, here's where your interests are and here's what the academic career is. There's some overlap, definitely. Um, and kind of take, do what you want with that sort of information. Um, I know that's not necessarily the case with everybody uh, and the PIs that, that they work with, but what I also find in general, because now I, I work on, on the other side, I help grad students and postdocs with some career planning and I'm organizing programming like mentorship with PIs and with non-academic professionals. And one thing that I found doing that is people are generally happy to help and share. So if you want to know what it's like to work in a particular field, send them an email and, and ask for an hour coffee meeting. People are pretty happy to, to do that. But if you are going to do that, make sure that you go in prepared. Because if you go in and somebody is giving up an hour of their time for you, and you're like, so tell me something, that's it, not going to work. But if you have a few questions and have just a casual discussion with them, it's a great way to learn. I agree with you 300% on that. It's going to be uh, awkward. It's going to, they're going to feel that you wasted their time. And it's, it's kind of, it may be perceived as a little bit disrespectful that you come unprepared to someone who has, you know, their, their schedule is probably pretty full. You know, so yeah, do, do reach out for these people, but come prepared. Do your homework, on, you know, know what the people do and be ready to start a conversation with with a team with an objective for sure i totally agree <laughs> i couldn't agree more 
Informational interviewing is underrated. <laughs> it's super, super, super important. And like you were saying, people are often, and, and, and you know, more than not, they're glad to share if you approach them correctly and, uh, and if, you, if you show that you value the time that they are offering you and if you come prepared, 100%. Felicia, we're reaching the half point of the episode. Um, we've, I think we have the story of, of you know, your, all your academic track, how you got into science, your interest for dance and music, and how now that was part of your research, which is awesome. I, 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 it's, it's really amazing to me. And I wish we could do just an episode on that. <laughs> but uh, we're going to take a little break. And, uh, we're talk- and, and then you already mentioned uh, uh, Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives. It's a super cool uh, um, initiative and uh, an organization here at McGill University. That, that you're you're working in and uh, that we're going to go into in part two so uh, sounds good see you after the break i'd really love you the audience to play an active role in the show so if there's a theme you'd like to see covered on the show or if there's a guest you'd like me to interview head over to anchor.fm forward slash papa phd and drop us a voice message to be featured on a future episode on the papa phd website you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get our resource sheet at the bottom of every page, and you can also leave us a written message in our contacts page. Welcome to part two of today's episode of Papa PhD. Uh, again, we have Felicia here with us. Uh, she has uh, shared in part one her story, let's say, in terms of her academic track and her passions and what drives what, what she does today. She has mentioned what she does today, but we haven't gone in, into you know deep into it uh, yet. So now, Felicia, uh, I'd really like in the second part to really focus and, and talk uh, about what uh, Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives is. Uh, you already said how you kind of found uh, and your position and your place there. But uh, now, uh, yeah, if, if you can um, share a little bit about what the project is, how it was born. Maybe uh, you can share a little bit on that. And what it offers to to students, in this case, uh, at McGill University. So Healthy Brains, Healthy Lives, or HBHLs, we'll call it for short, started in 2016. It's an interdisciplinary brain health initiative that uh, was born when McGill was awarded a Canada First Research Excellence Fund uh, that started in 2016. And since then, we've also um, gained support from the Quebec government as well. So HBHL has four main areas of focus. One is research. So HBHL offers uh, grants for PIs in four different research themes. Um, neuroinformatics, neurodegenerative disease, brain plasticity, and population neuroscience and brain health. And our grants often focus on interdisciplinary work, cross-theme collaborations, uh, inter-university collaborations, especially with Western University, as they also have one of the uh, Canada First Research Excellence Fund grants. Uh, The second area, which I work mostly on, is our talent area. We have fellowships for grad students and postdocs, as well as startup funding for new faculty. And we organize training programs for the students and postdocs. So we have some offerings that are exclusive for students that we fund, such as our trainee committee, which is a little student government, including grad students and postdocs that have received HBHL fellowships. So I mentor them and they organize their own academic events, networking events, make connections with industry, and they have their own social media and other communications. In addition to that, we have workshops throughout the year. So that's what my main job is, is organizing those. Sometimes I'll teach them. 
For example, this year we have uh, a 10-week introduction to coding in Python. We have a uh, individual development planning workshop series. Our next event on January 24th is our Science Communication Day. And we're also starting some entrepreneurship-related programming. We have a wellness day coming up in February. So much <laughs> so much stuff going on on a variety of different topics that um, can help trainees excel in their research and also in their future careers. That's super, super cool. And it's a lot of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, you're hitting all the marks in terms of, of what I imagine people need out there. Uh, how how did you um, how does HBHL come up with a, kind of a, a plan um, a vision for the year the, you know the upcoming year uh, have, did you interview students uh, in, in terms of their their like pain points uh, how, how do you how did you go and and like build this kind of very complex but very complete um, set of tools that you're offering and and and. So our training program has evolved over time. Uh, it started when I first started with HBHL in the uh, beginning of January 2018. Uh, so my first job was to do a needs assessment. So I started off with a few pilot workshops just to see what the uptake would be, what's more popular than others, what format do people like, and what what's going to get people in the room. At the same time, I did a survey of... Uh, neuroscience students at McGill, we had over 100 students respond to our survey. And we asked what their career interests are, and in some different skill areas, ranking different topics that they would be more or less interested in. So for example, in communication, we would have a list of like, like public speaking, academic writing, non-academic writing, social media, a whole bunch of other stuff, and they would rank them in order of what they would prefer. Uh, and then we also asked for preferences on programming styles. So would you prefer a workshop in the morning, uh, on campus at the Douglas? So after analyzing those results, I came up with a few different areas of focus. Um, so they were mainly coding was huge because that's such an in-demand skill in the job market right now. Science communication, exploring non-academic career options. So those were the top ones that I tend to focus on. Um, there was also a decent amount of interest in, of course, academic writing, um, wellness in grad school. So I, I have the three areas that are my top priority, but I touch on a whole pile of different things too. Uh, and in addition to that, I also looked at what programming already exists at McGill because I don't want to duplicate. Um, so where is there opportunity for collaboration? Where are there gaps? Where is there something that already exists that I don't need to touch? And also looking at examples um, in other universities across North America for neuroscience or um, similar science fields. Mm -hmm. Seeing what have they done, what was successful, uh, and taking all of that together, I built the first year of programming, which was uh, more single session based. Okay. So come for two hours, learn about public speaking, and you can come again in two weeks and learn about elevator pitch. And then next month, it's going to be a career panel. Um, so that worked pretty well. But I did find that the feedback we were consistently getting was, these were great, but I want more of them. And I want to dive deeper into some of these topics. So this year, we're moving more towards longer programming. So um, like a 10-week series for coding and a full day for science communication so they can come and really commit a little more time and dive deeper into some of these topics. 
And you're bringing in speakers and trainers from outside or from McGill? It's a huge mix. Um, I love teaching, so sometimes I will teach them myself. Um, but I know that it's in the benefit of the students to have exposure to a variety of different instructors. So I collaborate with other McGill groups as much as possible. Um, for example, our individual development planning uh, series called Peer Pathways, um, we did that in collaboration with MyPath at McGill. Um, for our upcoming Science Communication Day, we have some McGill faculty uh, giving a panel on academic writing. We have a McGill student doing a workshop and we're bringing in an external speaker from Toronto. This is very cool. I think uh, the students out there, uh, hopefully that most or all of the students know about this because often depending on, you know, you just arrived, you may not know of things that are happening around you. I hope, I don't know how you disseminate HBHL. We try and get it out as much as possible. We have our own mailing list. Um, if you're not on the mailing list already, you can email us, hbhl.mcgill.ca. And it, you can follow us on Twitter at hbhl.mcgill. All of our events are publicized on there. So we send out our newsletter to everyone on the mailing list. Um, we send out emails to different academic departments to ask them to share it with their students who may not know about us before. And we find by building collaborations with industry, with other external groups, our reach is getting even bigger. Excellent. That's really, really cool. Uh, curiosity, uh, is uh, are some of these uh, talks and things uh, open to the public or, or specifically to the neuroscience students at McGill? So they vary. Um, our programming varies from exclusively to students we fund to prioritize to McGill students and postdocs uh, or open. And it really depends on how much capacity we have. So a lot of our events will prioritize our mailing list and um, close McGill departments. And then whatever spots are left after that, we're happy to open up to anybody. But listeners out there, they, they you share your email, and later on, will you share any other uh, platforms and and uh, and uh, handles that Twitter handle, things like that that they may follow, so they can reach out to uh, and they they can go onto your website, see the program, and even uh, you know get get on a list to eventually uh, take part. Yeah, we often have students from other Montreal universities coming to our events. Uh, we have a, a collaboration with Ivado at UDM, so. Um, even when we have our big research day at uh, the end of May this year, uh, we'll have some presenters from there, from Western University. Uh, so we're we're pretty happy to open up. Very very cool. I'm I'm super impressed. I I kind of wish that that HBHL existed when I was uh, <laughs> doing my PhD because it, it's yeah. seriously. Uh, a lot of the things you said uh, really hit the mark for me and or would have hit the mark at the time. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, you live when you live and, and things like that. I'm super happy that this exists now for people out there now. Uh, it's, it's really awesome. Uh, one point that I would like to uh, to ask about is in your questioning of students, because wellness is something that's close to my heart. And I, I if I can, in each episode, talk a little bit about a little bit about wellness, about uh, mental health. Uh, I, I try to because I think it's it's important uh, for people out there who are facing challenges in different ways. Um, in terms of wellness, can you talk a little bit about the the what came out of, of uh, the the questions that you asked? What are things that students are more you know feel that are more lacking or that that they need or you know what are the pain points? Let's say in terms of wellness that you identified 
and uh, and possibly what solutions uh, have you found or are you offering to to students out there? Uh, so the the questionnaire that I gave out it wasn't necessarily designed to identify the well-being pain points. It was more. Um, what are you interested in learning more about? So if we host workshops and events and trainings on these topics, would you come? So I can't necessarily extrapolate that into where exactly the needs are in terms of um, of well-being. But in terms of the programming that we've decided to offer based on that, um, we're focusing on research-based programming. Um, for example, our wellness day will include some presentations on topics like stress management and technology use from neuroscientists because I find, especially after being a grad student myself, someone just saying you should meditate because it's good for you, it's not going to work. We need proof. We need to understand why it works. So that's the gap that we're trying to fill is um, understanding the research behind some of these strategies. That's super interesting, and especially given the public that you're that you're that's your your target public, it, it totally makes sense. It's gonna for sure they're gonna be more interested and more involved. Uh, because I remember when I was here, I, I followed the you know Caps has different different things happening. There was a PhD support group. I remember there was. Um, I remember this really good um, seminar on imposter syndrome, and it, this is something that I'm sure every year there must there must be one because everyone goes through through that, or a lot of people go through that. But the fact that you you add the research aspect into it, it makes it like kind of a 3D thing. <laughs> it, it pops out of the page in a different way. No, that's what we're trying to do. I know there's the Wellness Hub at McGill um, that offers many different well-being services. So we definitely do not want to duplicate. Uh, that's their area of expertise. But what we're hoping to do is offer some research-based um, workshops so that people will be motivated to go to the other offerings. Mm-hmm. So maybe if they understand the neuroscience behind why something like uh, meditation or breathing exercises might work, then they'll be more motivated to go to the workshop on those topics and learn how to do it. I'm speechless. It's awesome. <laughs> it makes total sense. And it's, it's the first time I, I hear someone say it in, in that way. And uh, it's, it's super, super intelligent and super in, intelligible. It's super uh, easy to understand why it, it works better with, with, the, with these students for sure. So HBHL now is, is your full-time job. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, we talked uh, in, the, in the break, you, you play the piano on your time kind of for relaxation and, and fun, which is cool. Um, now, the thing that, that uh, I'd like to kind of talk about and, and, and see what you have to say about is, so you did leave, you did go into Altac, into Alt Academia, and that's where you live now, and you, clearly you're, you're thriving there and doing things that you love. And when you know when you do something that that you love, uh, it shows. And I imagine that uh, in all, and not I imagine, just given all you said, you're still pretty much in touch with the academic community. Just for the sake of people out there who might feel that uh, going to an alternative academic or to a non-academic job is tantamount to failure, uh, can you please uh, share how it's not? You know, can you please talk more about where you are emotionally and where you are now as a grown-up professional that has a PhD under her belt, but that develops, uh, develops a whole set of different things in the world than research? So I think, I guess, the I'm going to call it the old-school way of thinking is that 
a PhD is training for an academic job. And if you don't do it, it means you weren't good enough. I think that's also coming from a time where there were a lot less people doing PhDs. It was less accessible. There may have been less people interested in it. So the percentage of people going from PhD into an academic research career was extremely high. But at this point, that's not the case at all. Uh, There's a lot of people pursuing PhDs because they're passionate about the research and they want to know more about that particular topic. They want to contribute to the knowledge or treatments or policy in that particular field. And that's the same thing you might do if somebody went to another job after. Um, It's just, it's a different way of doing it. I actually found my PhD to be a job. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's exactly how I saw it as. And I feel like really the only failure is doing something because you feel like you have to or because you feel pressured, not because you actually want to. And if you pursue whichever career path you feel most comfortable in and that fits best with your interests and what you want to accomplish, then it is absolutely never a failure. Even if you do something that's so different than your PhD, you still, when it was never a waste of time, I hear that sometimes like, oh, if you're just going to go in and do this other type of job than your PhD was a waste of time. It absolutely was not because whatever you contributed to that field still exists, is still getting cited or used in any way by the people who are working in that field right now. And you learn from it. You learn, of course, research skills and cool new things about the topic, but you also learned how to manage a project, how to work with a supervisor, how to work with peers, how to communicate your work. And those are things that you can apply anywhere. I find the biggest challenge is, I guess, selling that to employers and showing them why you are extra valuable. Um, and that's a whole other question. I'm not going to get into that right now. It's an important um, question, though. But but yeah, it, it, could, it could be another whole podcast. But you, you and your interests are the most important. In the same way that you might have somebody, hypothetical example, work in a bank for 10 years, decide they don't like finance anymore and want to be a travel agent. Um, I don't think most people would see that as being a failure. It's just a change of career. So this is exactly the same sort of a situation. I think one of the things that, that I've, I've seen now in social media and that may have to do with this has to do with semantics and, and the words that are used. Uh, when you say PhD student, people get hooked on the student part and think, oh, you're still in school. And you just said, for me, it was a job. It's, 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 you're a researcher. You're, you're a PhD. You're a researcher. You're a scientist. You're, you're a professional. You're learning skills. You're, you're being put in front of challenges and finding something that no one has found before. But I think the fact that when you talk to family and say, oh, so you're still studying, that's probably where all that misconception comes from or a big chunk of it, let's say. I know graduate degrees vary across fields and across institutions, so there are some graduate programs that are very course-based. Mine was absolutely not. I had to do four courses for the entire degree, so it really was a research job with the occasional course. Um, So going back to what you said about the term PhD student, uh, I actually never put PhD student on my resume. I write doctoral researcher, and it means the same thing. 
but in a different (laughs) way that the employer is not going to automatically think student. For people coming from other countries or that are first-generation PhD uh, doctoral researchers, (laughs) they may have difficulty in their family with their friends explaining and and, uh, and dealing with this this, uh, misconception. But for the listeners out there, Felicia just uh, kind of resumed a very important idea just in the fact that she did never put that on her CV. Think about that and change also maybe some self-talk that you may have. You are learning to be a super, super uh, intelligent, super productive young professional. That's what you're doing. You're, not, you're no longer uh, at school in that sense of uh, high school, etc. Not even your, your undergrad. And uh, again, if you're interviewing with, with employers, the way you talk about yourself and you present yourself even words are important. In this case, just saying I'm a doctoral student or I'm a researcher working towards my PhD, it's very, very different. And uh, so, so I, again, I totally, totally agree with what you just said. We actually we have two hour long workshops on how to um, write at your academic experience uh, for non-academic employers. But I would say my quick tip is doctoral researcher, master's researcher, postdoctoral researcher, whatever category fits, uh, but avoid student. Yeah, it, it sets the, the, the different stage of conversation and of negotiation for sure. And well, then we can also talk about valuing yourself on the, on the because you, you come out of a, of a PhD, of, of grad school, you've been on stipends or different fellowships. Learning how to what your value is on the market is, is also something else. I don't know if you have workshops on that too. Uh, Not yet, but we should. Yeah, it's it's very very uh, important and and uh, well, there you go. If I gave you an idea, I'm yeah, super happy already. <laughs> um, Felicia, it's been super great talking with you. HPHL is one of my like my pet projects that I'm going to keep an eye on for, from now on. It's super super interesting, um, and um, yeah, it kind of sums up a lot of the things that I kind of want to bring to people through the podcast uh, and and the fact that you're offering this to to the students in a structured way uh, is something that if you know if other universities could could do too uh, if every university could do it it'd be great uh, <laughs> yeah we awesome. know that not every university and has the resources to do uh, different things but um well if people can follow hbhl and and see and see what's out there and i don't know if you have resources that you share like uh, slide decks from presentations or pdfs from like different uh, tip sheets or you know i don't know if you have some types of, of resources on the on your website those are generally not shared publicly more for uh those who come to the workshop so everything's in context um, but if any individuals reach out to me and want some resources on uh any of the topics that we've covered i'd be happy to share some Excellent. Um, now, the the last thing before uh, before we start going uh, to the end of the episode that I'd like you to do is uh, to again thinking of your path, what you've lived through, and what you know what brought you here, where you are today. Uh, the, the like the key habits, the key strategies, the key no nos, like not writing PhD students <laughs> on your CV. Uh, it would be to share some of those of those key uh, pieces of advice with the listeners out there so that they that they may first one objective is go more smoothly throughout throughout their graduate school experience because it can be it can be rocky at times to uh, also point their their trajectory towards towards uh, uh, I don't want to use the word success because it's 
there's so much connotation to it, but towards a fulfillment at the end of a PhD and in the transition to whatever comes after. My top piece of advice, which we kind of touched on this in part one a little bit, is do something outside of the lab. Um, I know time commitment may vary for different people in different situations. Um, so it could be something like volunteering with student government or an outreach position, um, part-time work potentially, even something like sports. Just choose something that you like and do it for many reasons. One, it will get you out of the lab or out of your apartment and especially if you have something scheduled at a certain time you have soccer practice you have play rehearsal you have a meeting um it helps you plan your schedule and make sure that you don't get stuck in 20 hour long days at the lab it gets you meeting some different types of people outside of your immediate field and you learn different skills maybe you're a coach or uh, a music teacher or you, you do some uh, academic teaching. Those are skills that are very complementary to what you're learning in the lab, but not necessarily an overlap. And they're extremely useful in many different types of jobs. And that will help set you apart from other students. There's a lot of very strong scientists graduating from PhD programs every year, but you can be the neuroscientist that also plays soccer, the neuroscientist or the chemist or whatever field you're in that um, is also an actor or a teacher or a programmer or a science communication expert, whatever fits your interest, that will help define you in the job search and set you apart from others who maybe didn't do that. My second piece of advice is keep an open mind as to what opportunities might be available to you at different stages. So when I started my PhD, I had no idea that this type of job even existed. It just it wasn't even on my radar at all. And I just kind of fell into different steps along the way. So being open to trying new things, like this is the time to do that. Like I tried designing and, and leading workshops. If I hated it, I could have dropped out after a month. Um, but I didn't, and we know where that ended <laughs> up. Um, so if there's something that might be interesting to you, trying that in a part-time or a volunteer position, an internship, it's a great time to experiment. Um, so just keep an open mind, try new things, meet new people, see what else is out there, and don't be afraid to jump in and try something that's not science. That's super good advice. I think uh, it's super healthy advice. Uh, uh, not everyone can do everything on the side of their PhD, like I mentioned before, but do something on the outside. It, it, it'll also help, you know, not procrastinating because if you if you fill your schedule with interesting things, you won't have time for procrastination, like I was saying. Um, Felicia, thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, so generously on your story, on what you do today. And, and sharing with the student community every day, which is what you do. I, I, I myself uh, appreciate that, that you do that a lot. I think it's super important. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's great that, uh, that something like HBHL exists. Um, now, just before uh, we say, we say uh, let's talk next time, can you or do you want to share uh, like a Twitter handle that people can follow? 
Oh, uh, thank you so much for having me. I was really happy to share all my experiences. Uh, so if anybody has any questions about HBHL in general or any of our resources, uh, you can visit our website at mcgill.ca slash HBHL or on Twitter at HBHL McGill. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.